good evening. I'm Robert Wade. I'm a professor of political economy here at LSE. Um, I would like first to introduce you to the uh, main speaker, that is Christian Kellerman, who is at the um, Friedrich Ebert Foundation, which is a German uh, social democratic foundation linked to the Social Democratic Party. And in the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, he is currently the director of the Nordic office of the foundation based in Stockholm. Um, he has a PhD from Frankfurt University where he uh, studied uh, the reform of the IMF after the East Asian crisis. We were to have the third speaker, um, Sebastian Dulian, who unfortunately has become seriously ill, or at least ill enough that he cannot travel. So just the two of us. The specific occasion for this event is to celebrate the publication of this book. Um, the book is called um, Decent Capitalism, and the subtitle is A Blueprint for Reforming Our Economies. The question is, who is our? Um, it was published by Pluto in 2011. After this event, there will be a reception upstairs in 302, room 302, um, with wine and other things that you have at receptions. But also, right outside here, a book signing. Um, you can buy discounted copies of the book, and Christian will sign them for you. So all of you are invited. Um, uh, to the book signing and to the reception afterwards. Uh, we will finish not one minute later than possibly a bit before 8 o'clock. So the writing of the book was prompted, and I should just make clear, Christian was one of three authors of the book. Sebastian Dulian, who could not be here because of illness, was the second, and the third one was Hans Jörg Herr. Um, the writing of the book by these three was prompted by the upsurge of public and even academic questioning of capitalism as a political economic system, or at least a questioning of the type of, of, type of capitalism now institutionalized in most of the West since 2008, as in, for example, the Occupy movement of uh, 2011, um, which expressed a collective sentiment that something had gone badly wrong. Um, John Plender in the Financial Times just a few days ago said, uh, as by way of a symptom of things going badly wrong, that over the 2000s, bankers in the West had carried out, quote, one of the great heists, that is robberies, of history. Um, he was perhaps echoing distantly the title of William Black's book written in the wake of the savings and loan crisis in the United States in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, William Black's book was called The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own It. Um, so the Occupy movement uh, capitalized on this sense of uh, discontent, this questioning of our current kind of capitalism, but so also did the Tea Party movement, which exploded into existence in early 2009 in the United States, 
The Tea Party movement presents itself as a movement of, quote, ordinary people against elites, uh, uh, intellectuals, against Washington, against Wall Street, even though it's financed by Wall Street. Um, so we have had these manifestations of discontent, and we are here today to discuss ideas uh, in a more, uh, hopefully in a more positive spirit, about not just what to protest against, but what to protest, protest for. Um, the phrase, decent capitalism, invites the retort that it is an oxymoron like LSE sports or like MIT nightlife. Um, the point of the book is to outline a type of capitalism which is close enough to existing capitalisms to be achievable and which meets criteria that most people of good will and some sense of social responsibility would consider to be, quote, decent. Just to give two specific illustrations um, of uh, the kind of mechanisms that this decent capitalism would have to contain. First of all, at the national or perhaps regional level, decent capitalism would have to contain a mechanism that somehow or other ensured that average wages increase in line with average productivity growth and that minimum wages are linked to some percentage of average wages. It might be 50%, it might be 60%. And if you think about the Eurozone crisis, if the Eurozone had had such a mechanism of linking wage growth with productivity growth, then we wouldn't have had the kind of crisis that the zone is in now, or at least it would have been much less severe in particular because Germany could not have repressed wage growth to well below productivity growth, allowing German industry to become super competitive, and neither would Greece have been able to enjoy wage growth much higher than Greek productivity growth, um, plunging the country into huge uh, crises. So that's one kind of mechanism that has to be built into any sense, any model of decent capitalism, this linking of wage growth with productivity growth and linking minimum wage growth to average wage growth. At the international level, decent capitalism would have to contain a mechanism to ensure that countries do not run persistent current account deficits or surpluses, and in particular, that ensures that surplus countries, today Germany, uh, Japan, China, surplus countries would have strong incentives to lower their surpluses so as to provide opportunities for deficit countries to export their way out of deficit as distinct from having to get out of deficit by compressing their um, economy, compressing wages and compressing domestic demand. Of course, Keynes and others tried in the early 1940s to build such a mechanism into the Bretton Woods architecture for the post-war decades, but they failed because the Americans, which were the biggest creditors at the time, refused to accept the idea that creditor countries should be under pressure to reduce their surpluses. The Americans vetoed it because they would have been the ones who would have had to make the adjustments. And so ever since then, for what, six, seven decades since then, all the pressure to adjust surpluses has been on the deficit countries to compress domestic demand 
uh, if, and, and to also to devalue um, where they can in order to, to, to get out of the deficit rather than having a mechanism which puts pressure on the surplus countries to reduce their surpluses by, for example, increasing their imports. So, two examples of the kind of institutional mechanisms that really have to be built into any model of decent capitalism. And with that introduction, I'll hand over to Christian, who will speak for roughly 40 minutes or so, and then, depending on the time, I may, something, may say something about um, international organizations, the governance of international organizations, and decent capitalism, because some really interesting and also alarming things are happening right now as we speak in the governance of international organizations. I've just got off a plane this morning from UNCTAD uh, in Doha. Um, UNCTAD is these, this... Uh, uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, this small agency that has articulated the preferences of developing countries on issues that the World Bank and the IMF also speak about, like global macroeconomics, exchange rates, capital flows, debt, and so on. And the basic fight going on as we speak in Doha is that the Western countries are trying every which way to stop UNCTAD from talking about these things and get it to talk about for the next four years youth, gender, uh, environment, human rights and other such subjects so that the monopoly of these core economic issues remains with the Western dominated organizations, namely the bank and the fund. Anyway, it, um, then there's the question of what to do about that, to make it decent. So with that introduction, um, Christian. Thank you very much, Robert. And thank you very much for the invitation to this wonderful place. It's a great honor, I must say, to be here in, in London, here in the London School of Economics. And uh, being here in London at the LSE, I had my first awakening. So when we met just ha uh, half an hour ago, we met upstairs somewhere, and uh, Robert said, well, I looked at your presentation, and um, people know the stuff the first half, the first 22 slides, they actually know already, since that's, it's, this is common sense here at the LSE. So um, that's good news for you. It's good news for me, so I can speak a little bit less. But it's also bad news, because all my slides, of course, have gone bust, so I can't use them anymore. So I have to speak freely. And so uh, please excuse if, it's get, if it gets a little bit up and down, but I try to have a, a, a thread, a red thread, and a focus in it. But it's um, when you tour around the world, which we do actually, and that's good that we are three authors, um, and you speak about the current crisis, um, you actually do have to tell the whole story starting in 1945 or so. I know I don't have to do it here, but it makes sense. In, uh, it's, it's, it's actually requested in a couple of, in many regions of the world. Even in the region where I come from right now this morning, when I came from Sweden, from Stockholm, uh, where I just yesterday had a discussion um, with the trade unions there on the same topic and then it's also necessary to um, dig into the deeper historical roots of the crisis. So let me express my thanks to, to Robert but also to the organizers from the Friede Hebert Foundation here in London, to Jeanette and Karl Heinz and also to the organizers from the London School of Economics, it's great. Uh, unfortunately I'm here alone 
Sebastian Dolin, who was supposed to come. He's a brilliant young economist uh, from Germany, getting more and more important and, and, uh, and quoted and so on, um, which, is, which might be a sign of also some minor change of economics within, within taking place within Germany. He's, he would call himself probably a Keynesian economist, uh, like I would call myself probably a critical political economist. Uh, we have a critical view on capitalism as such, and this goes together with the institution I'm working for. I'm working with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. There you can see how it is actually written, Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, uh, which is um, an organization working globally in over 100, 100 countries around the world based in Germany. It's an NGO, it's a think tank, it's, a, it's an organization which tries to promote social democracy. So it's very close to the labor movement. It originates in the labor movement. So of course we do a lot of political advice, advising to the labor movement in Germany and across the, all over the world. That's the core task which we are doing. Uh, and therefore we are in a special symbiotic relationship with capitalism. There's no such thing as social democracy without capitalism. We have to understand that an actor group which is always standing at the deathbed of capitalism and trying and having got to save it when the others ruined it, that we are the kind of organization and um, political actor group which is um, there to redefine what capitalism is supposed to do. And that capitalism, which we have experienced in the last 20 years or so, and especially in the last five years with the outbreak of the crisis, is everything but decent, and is everything but good, and everything but social, everything but sustainable. So it's the opposite of all that. It's a lot of indecencies, and people get actually fed up by this system. And again, there needs to be an actor group standing there at the deathbed of this, organ of this system, trying to reform it or bury it. But there's no alternative. I repeat a sentence which is very tricky in this country, I know. But there is actually, apparently, no alternative today. When we three authors sat together writing this book or conceptualizing this book, we thought about, well, are we still capitalists? Are we still in favor of capitalism as we know it? We are. We didn't come up with an alternative. So we called it decent capitalism. In German, the book was called Der Gute Kapitalismus. Uh, interestingly, now, there's going to be a couple of translations I heard into Chinese and Korean, into Arabic, and a couple of other uh, big major languages, which is interesting. So they take up this third way, which social democracy always was, a third way between market liberalism as such, as the orthodoxy, and some kind of Marxism socialism on the other side. Okay, capitalism as we know it has come under fire. And there are at least two reasons for that. First of all, for reasons of legitimacy. And here, very uh, major role plays the distribution of income. We have seen a small share of, of the population, a small share of, of the population has seen income, incomes increasing in the last years. Look at Germany, for example, where I come from. The Germans have been extremely reluctant in uh, wage increases. You also see a vast majority has not seen an increase in standard of living over the past decades, looking globally. Robert has a much better view on that. 
but also in our countries. And especially social insecurity has increased enormously. So social, so social securers, uh, insurance was um, built down in, uh, in, in contrast to um, increasing the market sphere, what is called in technical terms, the decommodification or commodification of public services. Um, a second reason why capitalism has come, on, come under fire is for reasons of efficiency. First of all, economic growth. If you look into the history of the last 20 years, when the neoclassical revolution started with Maggie Thatcher and, and Ronald Reagan, if you look at the promises of supply-side supply reforms, which there were, like low inflation, high, high employment, growth rates, and so on, if you actually look at the figures, and that was one of my slides, which I don't have now, um, you see a decrease. You see a deterioration in all three matters. Employment, OECD, Germany, US was my cases. You see it goes down. So we have much more, much more unemployment in a trend level. The same is true for growth. growth. The growth promise actually didn't work out. So the, growth, the, the, the trend growth goes down. And the same is true for incomes. Income, top income earners, you know, you know all the figures, top income earners of, uh, of, house, of households, 20%. Those lines going up steadily since the, 19, since the 1980s, and the top and middle income earners is going flat. So this is not really the efficiency system which we were looking for when, uh, when the fruits of supply side were actually quite sour and bitter. Um, so this is the economic growth issue. The second issue regarding the, the efficiency reasons is the question of, do we actually have an efficient allocation of resources? Is the system really moving the money to where it should? Apparently not. Otherwise, I wouldn't ask this question. But as we know, I mean, the financial system, I don't have to mention this, in the city of London, the financial system has gone mad, and we have a lot of uh, circulation of financial capital within the own system, and not really allocating it into the most, not only profit, well, it goes to the most profitable sources, but it doesn't really go to the most needed uh, um, targets, like, for example, um, sustainable development or ecological renewal. Um, so we have seen the last crisis, which is also to be interpreted in matters of efficiency of, of capitalism. And what we, what we can say is that if you look at the crisis taken together, not only the subprime crisis, but also the euro crisis now, capitalism has actually become too expensive. It's too expensive for states to bail out capitalism all the time. If you look what, that's, that's what Germans look, look at very much because the the crisis of capitalism or the euro crisis hasn't so far taken place in Germany. It takes place in other countries down there. So Germans look at the television and see the crisis. But what they see is that they have to pay 211 billion euro if something goes wrong in one of these countries. That's what they have to do. And this is what Germans are afraid of. In, the, in effect, this is also part of the legitimacy crisis of, the, of capitalism because it gets too expensive to rescue it. Um, this is the rescue part, not to mention the stimulus packages which have been, uh, which, have to, which had to be um, um, drafted. Okay, um, I mentioned briefly also the underlying structural problems of 
um, abuse of our natural resources. I th we cannot leave out this issue if we talk about the legitimacy of capitalism, but uh, there's, an, there's a correlation be um, between global warming and the destruction of the environment, and capitalism is part of this uh, problematic, of course. Can be, um, can be um, bl blended out. So do we need to discard capitalism after all, completely? No, as I said in the beginning. Because um, if you regulate it right, if you regulate it correctly, like it was, for example, in the post-war era, in the golden Fordist era of capitalism, then capitalism can actually deliver quite some decent results. Growing employment, growth, distribution of income, increase in, in quality of life, standards of living, and so on, health standards. It can also have an empowering, emancipating effect, uh, bringing women into work, uh, and so on. Uh, so this is, this is why we are still in favor, arguing very much in favor in, of capitalism, but also, um, to be quite frank, there is no such alternative. But what went wrong if we go back into um, the crisis narrative. What went wrong in the last, say, uh, five years with the outbreak of, of, the, of the subprime crisis? One thing, of course, was finance wasn't regulated appropriately. Uh, it was real. It, it, you, you know all the story, and this is why I don't have to repeat it, which is great to be here in the LSE. But um, it was really like um, mad, mad finance. I, I myself was an investment banker in. Uh, in Frankfurt uh, for some time, and uh, I was actually working directly on Wall Street at a time when the German finance minister, who was a social democrat, was liberalizing uh, the German financial market, opening it up for hedge funds, which he later called low costs. So when I was sitting there... So he later called what? Low costs. Low costs. Oh, locusts. Uh, locusts. Yeah, locusts. Yeah. The insects. Yeah. Yeah. So the same party is actually first liberalizing the markets and then calling them a locusts. parasite. Um, that's an interesting turn. But when I was sitting there in this, in this office on Wall Street, um, many years, it's quite some years ago now, uh, and I was a social democrat by then already. And I was looking at what this social democratic finance minister, his name was Hans Eichel, was doing. He was actually well known for his austerity policy. Uh, I thought, well, if you open up this opportunity for hedge funds to come into the German market, then you don't have to worry, you don't have to complain afterwards if they do their business. That's just what they do. So that's the way it is. Um, markets can be regulated and they can be deregulated. And uh, we've seen a lot of... Um, shaky things in the financial sector, such as negative amortization loans, those classic ninja loans, which you perhaps have heard of, shadow banking, totally intransparent and uncontrolled. We've seen this fancy concept of originate and distribute. So you originate a financial instrument and you distribute it all over the world. So you have these chains of um, financial transactions which are chained together and so on, where you lose control of what is actually happen if, happening if one side is falling out. So this un underregulated financial sector, which is pretty much common sense, so it's nothing new to be quite frank. But the underlying factor is much, much more important for our decent capitalism analysis and crisis narrative. 
because we think actually that the crisis needs to be interpreted in a much broader historical context. It, we have to interpret this crisis in the context of 20 years of deregulation, especially deregulation of labor markets. Our main focus of, of analysis when we talk about um, the, the, the roots of the crisis uh, which, we, which we experience today is um, the income is distribu redistribution from poor to rich, a falling wage share, which is very closely correlated with an increase of financialization, so the increase of financial lo logic within the economy. Shareholder value is only just one catchword in this context. Financialization and wage share. You look at the macroeconomics, you look at the econometrics of that, you take the official statistics and you can actually find a very, very solid and significant correlation between financial influence and the development of the wage share in the OECD countries. This means, after all, if the wage share goes down, if we redistribute from the poor to the rich because of tax decreases and so on, um, we have a lack of structural ag aggregate demand. This is, of course, a very classical Keynesian argument. It's n nothing is new about that. But it has to be interpreted in the context of the crisis. That's the new part about it. And therefore, um, building on the, on the argument and on the, on the finding of, the, of, a, an, of, a, of, an, of a trend of structural aggregate demand going this way, down way, not up way, south ways, um, there have been two solutions which have been on the market, on the policy, policy market. One is well known here in the UK. Well, you substitute a lack of wage income by debt, household debt. So in the, in the UK, you had a booming housing market, you had a, a rather liberalized financial system, and uh, people and households were picking up debt and debt and debt, but the wage income actually didn't increase in line. That's one answer, one approach to the underlying factor of not having enough structural aggregate demand. The other answer is the German one, to accept it, to live in abstinence, to become a monarch, not to consume. That's the German answer. The German answer has been wage moderation for almost 10 to 15 years. And uh, all in favor, all in the, in the name of export and competitiveness, um, which uh, had very detrimental effects. Especially, it had a detrimental effect on countries which have current account deficits, which are import countries. So the southern countries. So the current account imbalances, which Robert already, already mentioned, um, are one of the core problematics, problems in the overall crisis. Um, overall crisis narratives, and they have not been tackled at all. So this is a completely open field. Uh, and the second thing is, the second problematic consequence of either of these solutions is that single sectors are growing, uh, are picking up more and more debt. And classical sector, of course, is households, private households. And you don't have to be a Keynesian anymore uh, um, to have this finding. You just have to read the Financial Times or the IMF working papers where household debt and, a and household debt based mostly on, uh, on mortgaging, on, on property increases, uh, actually has a much harder effect if then the market is uh, sort of say, is imploding on the growth path of a country. 
So this is actually also quite some common sense nowadays. Well, the crisis we've seen had, has brought this all to a halt. And uh, government debt then substituted for the private debt. So we had the situation that the, the, the private debt was bailed out by the states, but now is the question, of course, who rescues the rescuers? So who rescues Greece? Who rescues Spain? Who does? Even Germany has much more debt than it should have, at least according to the 60% figures of the Maastricht Treaty. So now we have a sovereign debt crisis. And this is, I think, a very important, very important line of thought to bring the overall structural changes of aggregate demand over the last 20 years into the context of this crisis which we, which we experience now where we've seen sideline solutions, tricks, so to say, to get around of this, of losing aggregate demand by either debt or just accepting it. What needs to change? It's the question, of course. And this is where the decent capitalism comes in. And um, of course, every based on the basic premise and based on the analysis of this, of this story I just told, well, the basic uh, framework needs to be constructed so that final demand can grow more continuously and more steadily. It is a growth model, absolutely. So you can say, do we still want growth and so on? Yes, this is first a growth model. So it's about final, final demand. But how do you, how do you actually uh, increase final demand? Well, there's a couple of uh, suggestions I can come in a, in a minute. Um, but the main lesson is that no sector, no country must embark on unsustainable debt levels. So the decent capitalism itself, an idea of that, is compatible with austerity to some degree, at least to some fiscal solidity, but also not fiscally, but especially also private households. We've seen a crisis of public debt in Greece, absolute d'accord, but we, don't, we haven't seen that in, in, in Spain or in Ireland. It's a totally different story. And to, to understand this, I think this is important to, uh, to uh, it was important to tell, um, to tell the, the story. Okay, if you don't see the underlying problems of this, of this, of this unbalanced demand, of this aggregate demand going down, if you only think that finance was the problem, then you actually, at least on your mind, you can sleep really well, because then you're on the safe side. Um, when you look at what has happened in the last, what do we have now, 12, in the last three years, since 2009, when the G20 met in Pittsburgh, and they said, well, we want to, well, there's really a structural problem in finance, we have to regulate that. And obviously there is a, there is a problem, as I mentioned, and there, a lot of things happened in that time. So there were significant improvements on capital requirements. There were significant improvements on the role of rating agencies, on the role of um, so-called systemically important financial institutions, on the role of securities and the securitization of, of, uh, of um, financial instruments. And also regarding bonus payments. So quite a few things actually happened on both sides of the Atlantic. In, in the US it's this Frank Dot plan uh, you also have the Volcker rule, uh, which is um, circumfencing commercial banking from hedge funds and so on. So quite a few th structural things actually happened 
on both sides. In, in, the, in Europe, it's not so, it's not so composed in one, in one law like it is in the US. You have more directives, the capital requirement directives, or the financial instruments directives and so on. So it's a bit more diverse and you have to read a bit more different kind of papers. But in the end, the message is all clear that finance, if finance was the problem, finance was regulated to a large extent. So you have to tell, you can say to your governments, good job, not too bad. You've actually done your homework, some of it. What you wanted to do in 2009 and what you decided to do in 2009 at the summit of Pittsburgh, you've actually achieved quite a lot. Of course, there's still some problems. There's still loopholes and regulation doesn't by far go far enough. But if you have a very low key crisis analysis like they had, then you are on the safe side. But what do we see? We see an, we see an ongoing crisis. So apparently it wasn't enough, you could say. And this is why uh, it is important to focus on the structural underlying factors of, of this crisis. How much time do I have? 15 minutes. 15 minutes? 15. 15. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, now it gets a little bit rougher. I, I was uh, saying that. But this is the part of, um, of the financial regulation. Um, what we criticize in, in our book and where we go a lot further than, than the G20 is that uh, we say this is not the end of the story. If you, if you have more own capital, if you have a couple of um, more buffers in the capital requirements, if the quality and quantity of capital requirements has been improved, this is not really doing the trick of regulating finance so that it becomes decent again. Um, also, the same is true for securities, for over-the-counter products, for the, all these kind of derivatives you heard about. Um, quite some things have changed, though now there's a clearinghouse and you need to have some minimum requirements for that. It all has been literally under the, over, under the counter, not over the counter, that would see, people would see. It was actually under the counter, so here's your paper. Um, nobody knew the risks which, which is in that now. So this has been changed. You actually have now some macro prudential um, oversight. You can see what is happening. It's in the clearinghouse. So this is really a tremendous step forward. But still there are a, a lot of problems with, uh, with, the, with the regulation. One of the key problems where we make it, try to make a difference with our proposition and also we try to influence in the, the German debate at least is, uh, for example, to, have, to treat financial products as medicine. If you want to put a medicine on the market, you have to prove that it's not harmful and you have to prove that it helps. And uh, the same should be true for financial innovation. Financial innovation is really, there's it's a tremendous innovation machinery out there, especially here. And uh, many people just doing that and they do it to circumvent also regulation. And Having non-controllable products has been, or in financial instruments has, one of the core pro, has been one of the core problems. And therefore we, we, we say if you can approve that a product is valuable and to the economy as, as such and doesn't create a significant risk, trade will not be allowed. It will simply be prohibited. So we argue very much in, favor, in, in the direction of making banking boring not completely boring, but a little bit more boring again. Because rating agencies, you can criticize them, and it's, yeah, it's common sense criticizing them. 
But they actually do quite some good jobs in a number of fields, but they really completely missed out the point when it came to structured products. They had no, they had no clue what risks was in these products. So these products were simply too complex. It's not really a critique of the rating agencies. It was impossible to, to rate these products. So here, in this context, you need to be, go a lot further if you really want to tackle um, problematics in the financial system. Another pillar of the decent capitalism is the tax, is the tax policy and the, and the role of the state in general. So the state has to come in again. The state has to play a much more active, much, much bigger role in, in this context. It has to invest. It needs the money for investment, of course. Where should it invest? Well, in an energy turnaround, in a green infrastructure. This is something where one is nowadays a little bit proud to be German again. Um, the, the energy turnaround, which is happening in Germany, phasing out nuclear power, um, investing into ecological, green, renewable energies, this is something where I say, well, this is, this is a good deal, actually. This is real technological advance. This is investment into produ productive forces. This is investment into productivity, growth, and sustainability at the same time. So there is something about that, but you need a strong state, first of all, to have these kind of laws, because these laws don't, are not, won't be liked by the nuclear power industry. I can tell you that. I'm living in Sweden. Vattenfall is a state company having many nuclear power stations in Germany. They call me every second day. What are you doing there? I say, well, we're doing the right thing, but you don't like it. But this is exactly where it should head for, and this is what the role of the state should have. But the state is reduced still. I come to that in a minute. So um, this is the state. And the other side of this coin, and this is extremely important for us, of course, at Friedrich Hebert Stiftung, we need to have a strengthening of labor unions. Because if you take the analysis which we made serious, that we have this structural aggregate demand problematic, um, due to a falling wage share and a wage trend uh, which has been detrimental to many, then of course you need to strengthen the labor, the labor unions, you need to encourage more membership, and where this is not possible anymore, for whatever reason, you name it, uh, you need to have legal minimum wages. Of course we argue for a European minimum wage. You have this in, in, the, in the UK, you have a minimum wage. We wish we had something like that in Germany, we don't have it. And we only have 20% of coverage of um, membership of, labor uni of, 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 of the workforce in labor unions. This is not enough. This is not working. So this is a dysfunctional system. This has to be changed. And governments are actually in the context of changing this. And taking the, in, the, 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 um, taking the imbalances within the eurozone into account, where there's a lot of talk by Paul Krugman and others on labor unit, unit labor costs being the competitive devaluator nowadays because the currency, the, the exchange rate is falling apart. You don't have an exchange rate anymore. So if you want to be competitive on the cost side, what do you do? You renounce on wage increases. That's what Germany did. So it, doing competition on reduced labor, unit labor costs is actually detrimental to many people, of course. But if you would get out of this vicious circle and say, well, we don't want Spanish workers to earn less now, and we want Germans to earn in line with productivity and the target inflation rate, but we rather want to go a step along, a step further in an asymmetric way, rather in a solidaristic way, saying, well, we want the Spanish workers actually to earn along the productivity increase, 
and also along the, the inflation target rate. But for surplus countries like Germany and Sweden, we want a little bit more. And this is exactly what is happening right now. And so there is some good sides, some good signs for the Eurozone uh, also at the horizon. There are a lot of dark clouds, but there are also good clouds and, and nice clouds which bring warm rain. <laughs> no, they, which bring the sun, of course. And that is, um, the, that is the, the, the wage policy currently take, got, taking place, at least in Germany, where the service sector had, ma had made an agreement of 6.3% in the last year, and also um, the metal, metal sector is now fighting for a similar amount of, um, of wage increases. That's good news. That's good news for Europe, actually. Um, the, the tax policy is important and it has been eroded very much and this is a point which I really love to dwell on and that I know I, I'm running out of time but the tax policy um, is not let me tell you a, a story I mean we have a nice little party in Germany which is called the Liberal Party, FDP probably you don't know it, you don't have to know it either it's not relevant anymore um, it used to be a little bit relevant yeah? it used to be like 10-12% now it's the government with Angela Merkel but you don't hear them, you don't see them, nothing. You don't smell them. They're gone. What happened? Well, the only sound they had was lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. That was the only sound they could, they could utter. This is not working anymore. Uh, we need... The, the story has completely changed. So they really um, moved themselves, themselves completely out of the discourse. They're not taken serious anymore, which is um, really good. So they are one of the first, sacri first um, sacrifices of um, um, a downfall of neoliberalism, if you want so, although I don't like the word either. Um, anyway, what we, what we definitely need is higher marginal tax rates for top income earners. Look at France. Francois Hollande, who might become the next president of France, he, he, uh, he demands a 70% income tax for incomes above 1 million euro. There are not so many 1 million euro incomes in France, I guess. But anyway, it still makes it, it's a symbolic th thing. And ideally, it goes beyond the symbolism. Ideally, it goes, actually, it becomes a source of finance. And f on that matter, why don't we copy the US? We, we tend to copy the US all the time uh, in many ways. In, why don't we copy the US with regard, for example, to um, the nationality principle in taxation. If a U.S. citizen is working in Hong Kong, he pays U.S. taxes. So why not have the same principle which applies to the U.S. to U.S. To US citizens, where, we, where Boris Becker is not moving to Monaco anymore and paying no taxes? Does anyone remember who Boris Becker was? <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> anyway, he really lost it when he, do, when he did, did that, actually. Uh, I it wasn't Monaco, it was Switzerland, but it's the same thing, more or less, at least from a German perspective. Um, and I think there has to be a much tougher stance also on non-cooperative jurisdictions, but this is a bit, bit too much political. It's not really part of the, of, the, um, of the decent capitalism concept. But if you listen to Martin Schulz, who is nowadays the president of, of the European Parliament, he always said the Swiss cheese of, of European tax policies, the Swiss, holes in, Swiss cheese holes in tax, European tax policies, they have to be eradicated. I very much like this uh, analogy. Um, and yes, and the last, the last point I would like to mention, but this is, would, would then already lead over to, to Robert, is the macroeconomic policy coordination on a more global level when we talk about imbalances. 
Um, what we've seen in the Bretton Woods time and uh, in the post-war consensus was a stabilization of exchange rates. It was a very strong architecture, pretty much um, uh, um, designed by the great economist John Maynard Keynes um, in cooperation with the United States. But um, stabilizing exchange rates is something which has been done all the time. Uh, there's a lot of fine-tuning going on in the, in the central banks around the world, um, but it's still a, a pretty much erratic process. And you also see that, um, of course, uh, competitive advantages are being built up on the, on the, on the basis of, um, of exchange rate manipulations. Um, you already said a couple of things on the prevention of excessive current account imbalances. I think this is utterly needed. I mean, this is uh, also why we got a lot of press on the book in Germany. If German economists criticize the German export model, this has never really been liked by, by anyone sitting in the chancellery. But anyway, we still do it, and we keep on repeating and repeating and repeating because the Germans are part of the problem, not part of the solution. They can be become the part of the solution. But then they would also have to tackle their own surpluses in, in, uh, in, dealing, in trading. And, well... People don't like to hear it, but I guess capital controls in some part might be, back on, might be on the way back. A number of countries are using capital controls, especially to control capital inflows in a number of Latin American, Latin American countries. This is also not only a lesson from this crisis. You could say Germany has, to, has very soon to impose capital in controls for inflows. It is not the case. But much of the money which is, which is currently flooding into Germany is coming from the southern crisis countries who are, in who are fearing that there will be a bank run or there will be a breakup of the euro and, and so on and so forth. So there's tremendous amounts of money going from south to north now. This is t totally unfair, you can say. <laughs> they need the money exactly down there. Uh, so, um, but this is not the case of the capital controls, but there is some, 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 uh, some rationality in some cases for it. So, um, now to sum it up, uh, I would like to give you or test a definition of what decent capitalism is. We def Robert asked us to define de decent capitalism, and we haven't done that before. We've written 220 pages or so on it, but we didn't have a definition on that, and he wanted to have two sentences, and that we have. So let me finish with saying, with giving you a definition, and please, please be critical. Um, decent capitalism is a variety of capitalism which guarantees a steady, crisis-free, ecologically sustainable increase in the quality of living for all. To this end, decent capitalism needs a much stronger regulation than the current types of capitalism. Thank you very much. Okay, um, I want to mention, um, just uh, before I forget, there is a great film um, available uh, called The Floor, F-L-A-W, not F-L-O-O-R. F-L-A-W comes from Alan Greenspan's testimony to Congress in late 2008 where he uh, admitted that he had discovered a flaw in his ideology and the result of this flaw was the crisis. 
Um, this film called The Floor, uh, directed by David Sinkton, you can get it on uh, uh, DVD, um, uh, particularly examines the link between uh, increasing income inequality, uh, wage repression, wage stagnation, um, income polarization at the top on the one hand, and rising financial fragility tipping into financial crisis on the other. So if you look in Google under the floor, you can find out how to get this film. It's uh, even better than Inside Job. I want to begin by just uh, being a devil's advocate for a minute um, and to suggest that we are no longer, contrary to what Christian said, we are no longer living in a properly capitalist system. Uh, we are no longer living in what could appropriately be called a democratic capitalism. Um, it's no longer democratic, it's become a plutocracy, um, not a democracy. And secondly, it's no longer capitalist, it's become and then the question is, what word can one use? Uh, one possible word is something derived from impunity. Impunity, uh, impunity means not um, uh, vulnerable to losses. Um, but you can't say impunism. So you can't say plutocratic impunism. So um, in the absence of anything more inspiring, I have thought of the phrase plutocratic loss socializationism. It's, <clears throat> it's extremely ugly, but at least it is more accurate than democratic uh, capitalism. Uh, I have elaborated this um, idea and apologized for that term, um, plutocratic loss socializationism, in, in an article in the journal Challenge, Challenge magazine, which will be coming out in the next, yes, in the May issue. If you type Challenge Magazine into Google, you will find the location of that article. But I just want to take a few minutes now, and then we'll open it up, to talk about um, some issues of international organizations, the governance of international organizations. I'm particularly interested in the question of how developing countries, as they gain economic weight, economic weight as measured by a rising share of GDP coming from China, from Brazil, from India, from South Africa, and so on, um, as they gain economic weight, how is their increased economic weight being translated, or not, into greater influence within uh, global governance bodies, economic and financial governance bodies, my reading is that at the moment there is a sort of growing paralysis, paralysis in many international organizations, interstate organizations in the economic and financial field, um, and that this paralysis results at least partly from a growing confrontation um, between the West, Western countries, the G7 countries, long used to governing international organizations like the bank and the fund, um, governing them in basically their own interest. Um, they are being challenged now 
by groups of developing countries, such as, for example, in the UNCTAD con context, the group called the G77 plus China. Um, slowly, these groups, and, and also the BRICS for that matter, this is uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, Russia is a very partial member, but India, China, and South Africa, slowly this group of countries is actually beginning to concert its actions, concert its preferences, slowly. Um, and anyway, the result of this is a growing paralysis, so that uh, the, the bottom line is that increasing multipolarity in the economic sense, not the bombs and rockets sense of multipolarity, is, is not being uh, is not generating increasingly strong multilateral bodies. Uh, there seems to be, in, in a sense, a, a weakening of the multilateral spirit as this confrontation gets stronger. And I was watching this in Doha in the UNCTAD negotiations in the past few days. But I wanted to just say something by way of illustrating decent capitalism. What would have to happen to move international organizations in a more decent kind of governance way. And take, for example, um, the presidency of the World Bank. What has happened in the past few weeks where the Americans have yet again succeeded in nominating the president, uh, sorry, in appointing the next president of the World Bank, Dr. Kim, a Korean American, who will probably be president for the next 10 years, that is to 20, uh, 20 uh, 22, um, it, it is quite astonishing uh, that this happened, at least on the face of it, it's quite astonishing, in particular because this time, for the first time ever, there were two serious candidates put up by developing countries, the Niger former Nigerian finance minister, who had also been managing director at the World Bank, Ngozi, and also um, Jose Antonio Ocampo from Colombia, who had been finance minister of Colombia, also um, uh, a very senior, actually deputy secretary general in the UN um, under Kofi Annan. So these two people, very, very well qualified, were actually put aside because the Americans nominated uh, Dr. Kim, who um, uh, has no experience in uh, this field. He's a public health um, expert. And my great worry is that, um, in fact, this is not just so much a worry. He's almost said this, um, not quite in these words, but he's almost said that his notion of development is to turn sick people in sick countries into healthy people in sick countries. Um, he has very little understanding of processes of economic transformation. Um, and this is a great puzzle why he was nominated at all, except that he's a very close friend of Timothy Geithner, who is the U.S. Treasury Secretary and whom basically made the nomination. But that, that to personalize it in that way misses the main point. The main point is that uh, especially once Christine Lagarde was made, the French finance minister was made managing director of the IMF, back when uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn uh, made his abrupt departure from the IMF. Once the French had again got the managing directorship of the fund, then it was guaranteed that even if President Obama nominated his dog, the dog would be made the president of the World Bank. That was the quid pro quo. 
Um, in fact, it's, it's, uh, it's actually more than that, because regardless of um, what the European preference was, and my quid pro quo, by that I mean that the Americans said to the Europeans, we will support Christine Lagarde, provided you then support us, whoever we nominate for, for the bank. So we both keep our monopolies. But even that is slightly misleading because regardless of the quid pro quo, the Americans can appoint whoever they want uh, because they have a, a veto. They have the supermajority, and they're the only country who has the supermajority. That is, they have more than 15% of the votes, and the supermajority is 85%. And effectively, though not uh, legally, uh, you have to have a supermajority to appoint the president of the World Bank. So the Americans can, nobody can be appointed to be president of the World Bank without American approval. Um, and this may seem surprising to you to those of you who follow these matters closely, as I do, because in 2010, the World Bank and the IMF announced big voting reforms, which gave a huge increase, so the headlines said, to the developing countries in terms of their voting share and brought the share of developing countries uh, into uh, the, the share of votes of developing countries in the boards of these organizations into line with their share of world GDP. That is flatly misleading. That's what the headline said, but it's flatly not true. Um, as I said, the Americans retain the, uh, uh, the veto. The European Big Five, including Spain, also have a veto because together they have substantially more than 15%. The BRICS, all five of the BRICS have 13%, so they do not have a supermajority. And so these are just um, some ways in which the headlines about the voice reforms that developing countries have finally been brought up to their share in terms of votes, their share of world GDP, that is really quite misleading. And until then, this is the point I want to make, until this question of votes vote distribution is changed and developing countries really are brought up to the share of votes equal to the share of world GDP, the Americans will continue to always be able to appoint the um, president of the bank and the Europeans will always be able to appoint the managing director of the fund, no matter how good the candidates from developing countries. So in terms of decent capitalism, we have to have a change, a real change in the voting distribution. The trouble is it's, it's extremely difficult to make these changes. The voice reforms that were not announced in 2010 were the results of month after month of 24 hours a day, seven day a week negotiations between countries negotiating down to the second decimal point. So whether country X should get uh, 1.32 percentage or 1.31 percentage. That was the kind of thing that people were negotiating about. Second point, and I'll finish on this, it has to do with the G20. Um, the G20, as you know, appointed itself as the world's steering committee for the global economy in 2009. 
The, and the problem is that the G20 is regarded by uh, many of the countries that are permanently excluded, and that's 90% of UN members are permanently excluded from the G20. It's regarded, not surprisingly, as an illegitimate body. It appointed itself, to be more exact, Timothy Geithner, who was then, in 1999, Timothy Geithner at the US Treasury, deputy to Larry Summers, uh, uh, and Kaya Kochweiser, who is Eichel's, the finance minister's, uh, German finance minister's um, uh, leading civil servant for international economic affairs, these two had transatlantic telephone calls and they selected who were the 19 countries to be included in the G20. Of course, the European Union had to be included um, as well, so that would make 20, so only 19 countries, but they, they chose the countries. Um, and many countries that are permanently excluded regard this as a kind of a coup d'etat. And they are very um, uh, executive directors on the boards of the IMF and the World Bank who are non-G20 countries are very angry that the bank and the fund and also the OECD are being enlisted by the G20 as their secretariat. And the point being that the G20 with its secretariats, the, the fund and the bank and the OECD, is increasingly a Western body in which even the developing countries in the G20 have less influence because the whole agenda is being shaped by input from these Western-dominated bodies. Um, and so I and a colleague at the Danish Institute of International Studies named Jakob Vestigar have proposed a blueprint for abolishing the G20 and for replacing it with a global economic council on a firmer constitutional foundation. Um, and our design meets two key uh, criterion. And I put this to you because you may be able to come up with a better design. Um, but whatever design uh, uh, you come up with, it has to meet these two criterion. One is that, maybe there are three, one is that um, all the countries that are genuinely systemically important have to, be at the t have to be able to be at the table all the time. And that by sy genuinely systemic, um, I'm, I'm excluding Argentina, which is in the G20, and Australia, which is in the G20. I'm from New Zealand, so of course, I don't think Australia um, should be there <laughs> um, as, as a permanent member. But the, so the, the main ones, the, the systemically important countries have to be able to be at the table all the time, the Chinas and the US and so on. Um, that's criteria number one. But secondly, all countries that are members of the UN have to be incorporated in a representational system somehow. Take, for example, the Bretton Woods organizations. All members of the Bretton Woods organizations, the bank and the fund, are represented on the executive board, even though the board has only 25 seats. They're represented through a constituency system. So all countries are grouped into constituencies, and they elect countries to represent them. Each constituency elects to a country to represent it on the board of the World Bank, and in this blueprint for the Global Economic Council, um, 
we draw upon a reformed version of this Bretton Woods constituency system. The main thing, the second criterion then, is that all countries must be incorporated in a representational system which is quite different from the current G20 where the 19 countries that sit there only represent themselves. And thirdly, the third criterion that has to be met, there has to be some automatic formula such that as countries rise in terms of their share of economic weight in the world, so um, they ascend to the G20, but as countries go down, then they go out of the G20. In other words, it's not the case that once a country is on the G20, it is there forever and ever, and all other countries are permanently excluded from, uh, from sitting at the table, so to speak. Um, these are the three uh, criterion, and the present G20 simply doesn't meet these criterion, and I propose the Global Economic Council, as we outline it, as a step in the direction of decent uh, global governance. Um, the journal Global Policy, which is a journal published from LSE, uh, will publish Jacob and my blueprint in a month or so. So you can look out for Global Economic Policy our paper on how to abolish the G20 and replace it with a properly constituted Global Economic Council. In any case, the main um, subject of today was uh, Christian's uh, account of the economic mechanisms, particularly at the national and the regional level, of decent capitalism. So let me open it to the floor. Yes. Yes. Perhaps you could just uh, identify yourself. Hello, I'm Mike Joffe from Imperial College. Um, I, I tend to agree with pretty much all of your analysis of what's happened to um, the bits of capitalism that you covered in your analysis, which is primarily Western Europe and North America, as far as I could see. Um, in other words, capitalism is being equated with the traditional capitalist countries kind of before the rise of Japan. Um, the problem, I have two problems with it and I'd like to ask you about. One of them is that you've got something like a closed economy assumption. In other words, you're analyzing the relationship between what happens in the economy and what happens in policy, and that's fine, and I agree with most of it, the effects of financialization, uh, wage restraint, and those sorts of things. But capitalism is international so that if we look at, for example, uh, what's happened in this country, but it's true in most of the rich world, exclude, partially exclude Germany, uh, the decline of somewhere like Sunderland or Clydeside, shipbuilding economies, is actually a response to the, the fact that ships could be built in somewhere like South Korea. In other words, the decline of the West is not the decline of capitalism, it's the decline of the West in relation to the East. And I didn't get a sense of that in your analysis, and I think it's important because we continue to live in a world of global capitalism. And my second point, if, if I'm allowed that, is the point which I think both speakers made about aligning wages with productivity. I can see how that works if your analysis is based on nation-state, Germany compared with Spain or Italy or so on, Greece. But what if it's a comparison of sectors? That would mean that people who work in a care se sector like healthcare 
would continue to have low wages, but as productivity increases in other sectors, more dynamic sectors like uh, manufacturing and uh, IT and so on, um, wages would increase. So that would be a source of a new source of uh, inequality, which I think would be counterproductive. Okay, um, I'm going to sit down and let Christian handle those. <laughs> We, okay, later we'll collect questions, but let's deal with these ones. I mean, they do strike me as fundamentally important, and I do actually have something to say about them. Go, but go ahead. Are you, don't, you sure you don't want to start? No. <laughs> um, well, let me start with the second question about the productivity. Uh, of course, um, um, built into our analysis is also um, an, a holistic and... A, um, national analysis of productivity and uh, uh, looking at the different sectors and the core problem if you look if you take a closer look at the productivity measurement of course is the, is the self referentiality so it's a self reference within the service sector where you cannot measure um, the productivity in such a way as you can measure it with input output factors in the industrial sectors so the hairdresser who earns 20 pounds for a haircut in working in 20 minutes and the other one just earning 10 pounds is double, has the double productivity than the other one. But is, is that really the case? It's simply a price level. So it, it's, uh, this price mechanism of, of, of productivity in the service sector is one of the core problems. So how do you actually um, encounter these new, these potentially new um, inequalities, as you say, Mike, uh, regarding uh, productivity within, uh, between sectors. I only think there's one answer, and this is a minimum wage, and this is a legal minimum wage. Um, to have a, a floor for um, especially the service sector. So the, the minimum wage, if you, if you look at it in, in an industrial country like Germany, it would pretty much, first of all, um, catch <laughs> service sector uh, employees. Um, like hairdressers and others, and um, that will, would be the floor um, on which to 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 um, to negotiate. Ideally, of course, you have, um, and this brings me to the first question: you have a balance within capitalism again that organized labor is strong enough to simply negotiate the wage and um, the price level, which then which then might turn out can be hard. I mean, taking a personal example in Sweden. Services are much more expensive, so services are valued higher on an on an on an overall economic and social level. The waiter in the in the cafe doesn't get tips because he or she actually earns enough salary. The taxi driver doesn't get tips because he or she actually earns enough money by driving taxi, and so on and so forth. So this is a total a different um, democratic decision to have to value a sector more than it is, for example, been done in the US or in Germany or I guess also in the UK. I'm not, I'm not so informed about that. Um, but the problematic remains, and it's, perfect, it's a perfectly um, fine question to say that um, it's very difficult to measure productivity in the service, service sector. Uh, this I'm saying as a political economist, since the, the real hardcore economist is not here today. He would probably have a much better answer to that. Um, Capitalism as such, um, a decline of the West? No, 
I don't see that. I mean, of course, there's some outsourcing going on, but look at the energy, look at the industri in ecological industrial policy taking place in a, in a number of countries. This is an industrial strategy. It's simply a matter of what to produce. So it's a matter of competitiveness. It's a matter of education level, a matter of investment. Um, yes, yeah, certain, certain, of course, there's a division of labor and so on, and the West is, this is, this is the story, the West is going down. I actually think that there's a lot of potential, uh, growth potential in new industries been missed out by a number of countries, including Britain, uh, which means that uh, a lot of these uh, production is moving over to other places where labor is simply cheaper, and this is the manufacturing um, intensive um, production lines. So I am a little bit more skeptical about this hypothesis, to be quite frank. Okay, just let me make a couple of um, comments. I do think these questions are fundamentally important. On productivity in the public sector, uh, let me tell you the story that Michael Kitson, the economist at Cambridge, told me. He was studying productivity in the health sector in Britain in the, around about 1985, Oh, in the late 80s, and looking back at the statistics, he was very surprised to see that around about 1985, there was um, a sudden jump in the productivity of the private health care sector in Britain um, as compared with the NHS, um, and it just happened like that, and he was so puzzled that he managed to track down the statistician in the National Statistical Office who was responsible for these statistics and asked him on what basis um, this uh, jump in the private um, productivity had, uh, he, he had based it on. And the man said in a very kind of uh, matter-of-fact way, well, everybody knows that the private sector is more productive than the public sector. And so when I took over this portfolio, um, I just decided to um, you know, add on another two percentage points that just seemed reasonable, um, and so that's the this 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 uh, claim that the private healthcare sector was more productive than the NHS uh, using these statistics was just based on a kind of rule of thumb that it must be the case that he had no other basis for measuring it than that. Anyway, on the second uh, and really important point. Um, I think you're right that the, the north of England has been rotting for a hundred years relative to London and the south uh, east. Um, and it's partly because um, really ever since the Second World War, the very notion of industrial policy has been uh, forbidden um, in this country or where there is any sort of industrial policy. It's just thought of as sort of propping up losers so that uh, the government of the day can get the votes from people who would otherwise not vote or be rebelling, like propping up uh, companies that um, had really no prospect of succeeding and not putting performance conditions on the support that was given, quite contrary to the way that East Asian industrial policy was um, configured. Um, fortunately, there is, just in the past few years, there's been something of an opening towards a, a sort of pragmatic, non-ideological discussion of industrial policy, not necessarily in this, in this country, but in the rest of the world. 
Um, so it may even wash into this country. Um, at the moment, my friend at the British Treasury tells me that the minute any policy proposal can be responded to with the words, this will create a price distortion, then it is dead in the water. You're not allowed to have price distortions. The price mechanism must be um, sacrosanct. I'm exaggerating, but not very much. Um, so until there is a, a more pragmatic kind of engagement with notions of industrial policy, selective support for some activities more than others, I don't see much of a hope for regeneration of, for example, the north of England. And this, this same issue comes up very strongly in the case of the China problem facing particularly many developing countries such as Brazil. And I just don't see how countries like Brazil can uh, save their manufacturing, a whole swathes of their manufacturing. I'm not talking of aircraft, I'm talking of other parts of Brazilian manufacturing without use of protection, some forms of protection. And then the question is how to reform the WTO to allow some forms of protection such that Latin American industry can survive and African industry, the critical thing for African development is to have more industrialization how uh, that uh, African industrialization can even get off the ground in the face of very cheap Chinese imports. It's a hugely difficult, very controversial problem, and I think that protection must be part of the solution, just as it was much used, protection was much used in East Asia, Korea and Taiwan, for example. Okay, so, yes, could you just introduce yourself? Oh, hi, Toby Chambers, um, Social Miles. We're developing a new crowdfunding platform. Um, Sorry, could you just introduce yourself? Toby oh. Chambers. Toby Chambers. Yeah. Yes. And um, I would question your um, assertion that there's no alternative to capitalism. I think there's actually a growing new type using social media to actually allocate resources with sort of crowdfunding um, and all the, all the sort of new platforms that are actually developing and that's a new way of actually allocating resources from different people to other people and I'd like to sort of find out your views on that. I think we should take one or two more questions, yes. Hi, Katie Metzler from Sage Publications. I just wanted to bring it back to the title of the talk and ask you what you thought protesters should protest for. There was a lot in there, and I'm not sure it would all fit on one placard, so what should we be protesting for? Hey, I'm David Prater from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I wanted to ask if, do you think that any kind of capitalism, or at least there is some kind of capitalism, um, that is compatible with the um, system that doesn't have to grow continuously every year at a rate of at least three or five percent? Okay. Would you like to tackle those? Um, to start with Toby, um, there are 
alternatives to capitalism um, with regard to different forms of um, ownership, of course. Um, social media is, is one, one thing you mentioned, although those are mostly owned by one or two persons or by shareholders or whatsoever. But um, what we currently um, observe also is a revival of cooperatives, which is a different form of ownership and a different form of distribution of, of output, so to say. Um, that was very en vogue um, a couple of decades ago, and it's actually coming back because some uh, more alternative forms of ownership actually also prove to be very crisis resistant. For example, there's a, couple, there's a banking system in Germany, uh, sorry to quote Germany all the time, but we have three, times, uh, three pillar banking system. One is based on cooperatives actually, and those cooperative banks were not in a crisis. Uh, so they refrain from all these kind of um, uh, speculation and, uh, and yeah, feeding frenzy, you can say, and uh, actually may had a much better performance after all. So um, that is serving as example for other fields. Go to Berlin, you see um, neighbors going to getting together, pooling money and buying a property and uh, um, having like some like a communal atmosphere there again. So this is also something, of course, this is still capitalism because it's still bought with money and the money has to come from somewhere and you still have owners, but it's a different form of capitalism, um, a much more nicer one, actually. And that leads me over to, to Katie's question. Um, protest for what, actually? I mean, coming from the analysis where, which, which I tried to, to convey was um, having income disparity, dis, uh, income divergence going, going um, getting worse and worse. So um, you protest, one protests against inequalities. That's what I would protest for, and that's also why, I, why we wrote this book. We are, in, we are unhappy about the increasing equalities, and this is more and more um, hitting people like also the middle classes where we belong to. We are not. We are still on the on the lucky side, but um, it, it in, it's increase. It's getting more and more into the heart of the society, um, and it, these indecencies are not only morally bad, I would say, from a philosophical standpoint, but they are also economically detrimental. And this is what one thing. The other thing is finance. For example, I'm I'm a founding member of Finance Watch, which is something like a Greenpeace for. A, for financial regulation in Brussels. It's a think tank which has been founded because parliamentarians across party lines in Brussels were shouting out, they were writing an open letter across Europe saying, we need counter expertise, democracy is going down, we really have a huge systemic problem, we need expertise for financial regulation which is not coming from the banks themselves. Because you have thousands of um, banks being represented on the Brussels level or on the Washington level, and they write, actually, they, they write the actual laws. And now we have found it with, um, with money from private donors, but also with money from the EU Commission, because they actually saw the point, the case in that. Um, this um, this uh, um, think tank called Finance Watch, and it really has an impact. So if you want to protest, become a member of Finance Watch. I make a little bit commercial here. That's one thing. Or become a member of Trade Union. That's also something which makes a lot of sense in the very moment when you want to have more e better income distribution. Um, a, third, a, third act pro a third way to protest would be to say, if you're in a, neo if you're in a, if in a, like a lecture, 
like this one. I'm glad quite a few people stayed. But if in a lecture you don't like and you hear the neoclassical sound being rep re repeated all and all over again, that it's all about um, those more superficial factors which I tried to mention, then just leave the room. There's actually some protest. Tell them, tell them about Mankiw. Yeah, well, I had, I had, you know, I had a slide here. <laughs> and um, student walkout at Mankiw's class in Harvard. So Mankiw is quite a neoclassical neo uh, professor. And Gre Gregory Mankiw. So the students actually walked out of his class, and I, I wanted to bring that up. And actually, people said, "Well, we need more head. We need more." Um, diversity in crisis analysis. There's not just one story. There are more stories. And give me, it, we don't have to buy your story. You don't have to buy my story, but I want to listen to it. And I want to listen to it in, a, in an Ivy League institution and not only in some kind of dodgy place somewhere out there. And the fourth, um, fourth way to protest is, well, vote your government out of government. It's terrible. That's one thing. <laughs> um, the last, capitalism and growth. Capitalism and growth, it's a very, I mean, this is, of course, growth is the life, life um, um, substance of, of capitalism. Where was the, yeah, there, over there. Growth is the li life substance of, of capitalism, but it doesn't have to be so high. It has to be distributed in the correct manner. Um, Keynes, for example, had a very interesting idea. He said, why have... Why have high returns anyway on capital? You don't need high returns. So a financial system can work on low average returns. It's all a matter of relation and relativity. And he also said, why not have only re returns on, on capital coming from productive investments? So real innovative companies who, well, invent something great like uh, Apple, you know, like iPhones or whatsoever, or like... Uh, I'm handing you like that example, but uh, maybe like uh, some solar cells or whatever, which are great. And why not only have co income or return on investment coming from these kind of innovative uh, investments and not coming from the financial system within itself? Because financial markets were already then a problem when, when Keynes was writing his general theory. He was always talking about the sand in which has to be go has to be put into the financial markets so they don't overspeed. And uh, he, he already saw this problematic very, very, very um, openly coming and saying, well, we could live also, capitalism could live very well with lower rates of return and lower rates of growth in that context. Okay, just a couple of quick points um, on Toby's question um, about the ownership and the objectives of firms. Um, if you type into Wikipedia the phrase low profit, limited liability company, you will come up with a, um, an account of this legal form of um, ownership which permits activities to be carried out in, in for-profit organizations, for-profit firms. They're not non-profits, they are for-profit, but they are protected so that they can carry out a mission which is not primarily about maximizing profit, but it is something else. It may be, for example, educational, or it may be to produce a newspaper. And I personally think that there is no future for quality journalism, print media in particular. There's no future um, 
uh, unless uh, the uh, ownership of um, media firms is put into this category of a low-profit limited liabilities company. Otherwise, the tendency to drive down towards sports scandal, um, gossip, and so on is just too strong in order to uh, maximize profit. So there is, it seems to me, a big scope for new forms of corporate organization which are in, in between profit maximizing where the primary object of the firm is to maximize profits by means of supplying some good or service and a non-profit uh, <coughs> organization. There's something in between. On the, the point about is capitalism compatible with um, no growth, um, I recommend a book that I keep meaning to read more carefully than I have, but the title tells you the message. It's called Prosperity Without Growth, and it's about Western developed economies, not about developing economies. It's by Tim Jackson, and he does provide um, a, a really serious argument about the possibilities of a, yes, a form of capitalism which generates prosperity in already developed countries, with very low levels of growth. Um, so we can have uh, just one, maybe one more question. Um, I think there was one over there. Did, did you want to? Yes. And then we'll take two. Yeah. Um, my name is Nate. I work for IBM software company. So um, your name is what? Nate. Um, one thing I would like to know is, uh, given the fact that financial systems have systemic impact on the global or national economics, what is your opinion on uh, on capping or banning political party campaign contribution from financial institutions or you know they are you know executives to the political party campaign activities? And, um, in relation to the regulatory issue. Yeah, there was a question here. Hi, my name's uh, Nav Cochrane. Um, my question, so coming back to the question, what protesters should protest for? Um, I guess protesters always protest for a reason. Um, it can be generalized. It's some sort of conflict or crisis that comes from uh, without, so from, from an external conflict or crisis. Um, isn't the feature of the capitalism we face today is that it is it is faceless and distant? Um, so any issues with it will always be will always cause uh, a, an issue um, from outside, um, rather than people in small communities uh, really facing any issues they face sort of within themselves. So isn't isn't the only way for protesters to stop protesting? Um, to, to make things more local um, and more within their control. Do you have any thoughts about how to make an issue like putting pressure on surplus countries to reduce their surpluses could be made into a protest uh, campaign? Yeah, I, I guess I was thinking at an even smaller scale. So you mentioned cooperatives and that kind of that whole ownership structure that's a, a system within, rather than trying to to push a kind of another country to make to make that difference. Yeah, but that that does make the point. It's extremely difficult to get these global mechanisms 
into a form in which they might be the subject of um, political protest. I mean, it really is difficult. I'm, I myself am not an activist, and I don't regard it as my job to just focus in on how to frame things so that a protest movement could take them and run with them. Um, but I recognize it's a really important challenge. Otherwise, you're, there's a danger of being in the position of the man who drops his, the, the drunkard, as it's always said, who drops his keys in the dark and walks to the lamppost to um, find them because that's where the light is. That is to say, the protest movements take something which is sort of easy to make a protest about because it has a, a nice target, there's a nice victim, there's a nice perpetrator, but that actually may be a small part of the, of the problem. The problems that are driving the things that protests, protesters are protesting about may lie somewhere else, but the question is it's really difficult to frame those things um, in a way that governments are forced to uh, pay attention to them. I don't know, it's a real conundrum. I, I think we should, we do need to break. Um, and Christian is going to be outside uh, signing books for those who wish to buy them. This is the book. Um, so thank you very much.